Thank you very much for the special music, uh, Jerusalem uh, of gold, uh, forever young, forever old. <clears throat> We're all going to live there someday. Anyway, greetings to uh, everyone, all our brethren and friends around the world, and welcome to all our guests that are here today. We've had a wonderful, awesome Feast of Tabernacles this year, and we observed a voluntary church fast the last Sabbath. Uh, the purpose was for us to humble ourselves and to focus on the mission of the church and to have that vital focus. In fact, the title of Mr. Weston's sermon was Maintain Focus to the End. So we need to keep seeking God's kingdom, as we heard in the sermonette, and his righteousness and that main goal of Matthew 6 and verse 33. One of the Feast of Tabernacles themes has been and always will be preparing us to be kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God and to serve the world. <clears throat> My turn to First Peter, the second chapter, which I'm sure you must have read during the Feast of Tabernacles because it emphasizes our calling. <clears throat> First Peter 2 and verse 4. Well, verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And later in verse 9, he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Why it's royal and a priesthood? Because it combines the kingship with priesthood. So you're kings and priests. It's a royal priesthood and a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is the job of a priest? Of course, the priest is a teacher. And sometimes I think our young people will be a little put off by the term priest, but you realize when it is an awesome high calling and when you realize the responsibilities and role of a priest, you would want to embrace it because you're able to serve, and we'll see later on, you serve billions of people during the millennium and even many more billions during the White Throne Judgment. So one of the responsibilities of a priest is to teach, but another one of the responsibilities is to intercede to help people who may have sins. Those who are faithful Christians now will serve billions of people interceding in the millennium. So brethren, as priests and teachers and training, we have a responsibility to love our neighbors as ourselves. And one of the ways of showing that love towards our neighbors is through intercessory prayer. And that's the title of the sermon today, Intercessory Prayer. And I didn't know Mr. Dawson was going to be speaking on prayer in the sermonette, but uh, certainly supportive of the main theme today. I had a, you'll turn to uh, Proverbs 31. I had a personal experience along this line that helped me to learn how to intercede or to plead the cause of another. Proverbs 31 and verse 8, 
Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Proverbs 38, 31, verses 8 and 9. It was back in the late uh, 70s at Ambassador College in Big Sandy, and one of my friends was working the agricultural program and working with a, a, a trailer and a, a, a tractor and caught his ring finger on his left hand in the joint of uh, the tractor. And uh, I took him to the hospital there in Gladewater. It's about 10 miles east of the campus of Big Sandy. And the doctor just took one look at his, his finger and said, that, that's got to be amputated. And the doctor actually had me cut off. He gave me a little tool to cut off the wedding ring so he could operate on the finger. And I know inside I knew, oh, we don't want to have his finger cut off. And I, But should I say something? And I, oh, I don't know if I have the courage to say something. I prayed and finally uh, said, well, doctor, can you please try to treat his finger without amputating it? We'll sign a release. So God gave me the courage to at least plead with the doctor to save my friend's finger. And he said, well, okay, but I'll guarantee he's going to be back in a week or two with gangrene and I'll have to amputate it anyway. Well, no, my friend, now 30 or 40 years later, still has his ring finger. So it was an object lesson for me of, of interceding, of pleading the cause for someone else. The definition for intercede is to enter, of course, the word intercede is we enter between, cedo, go, literally to pass between, to act between parties with a view to reconcile those who differ or contend. Another meaning is to plead in favor of another, to mediate or make intercession. Now, there's a real graphic example here in Numbers, the 16th chapter. Number 16, some of you already realize, is the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And I won't go through the whole story, but, you know, they were wanting to have the role of the priesthood in addition to their already being Levites. And uh, so Moses told them to appear before the tabernacle, and and uh, he said if there's something unusual that's going to happen, uh, we'll realize God is going to do it. And verse 31 of number 16, Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, all the men with Korah and with all their goods. So all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. So this is an object lesson for rebellion. You Remember, it was Samuel who said that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You need to make sure that you have the godly fear that you don't even come close to what might appear to be rebellion. But what happened? On the next day, verse 41, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. They, you have killed the people of the Lord. So they started blaming the people started blaming Aaron and Moses. It was God who opened the, the earth. Moses didn't open the earth and swallow them up. And uh, so 
it happened then that the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting. And suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the eternal appeared. Verse 43, that Moses and Aaron came between the tabernacle of meeting. And the eternal spoke to Moses saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Now, Moses could have said, yeah, I've had enough trouble with these people. Please go ahead and consume them. (laughs) They've just been a a big problem to me. But no, what, what did Moses do? They fell on their faces, that is Moses and Aaron. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer, verse 46, and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it. Take it quickly to the congregation to make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the eternal. The plague has begun. So God was letting those people who were rebelling, he was bringing punishing them by death. But what happened? Aaron took the censer, as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people. Verse 48 is a dramatic, graphic example of interceding. He came between life and death. Verse 48, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. A dramatic example of intercession. So God was about ready to kill them all, but Moses and Aaron interceded. And those who died in the plague, verse 40, were 14,700 beside those who died in the Korah incident. So we have a responsibility as priests in training to intercede for others. And we have that command and instruction that you're familiar with in 1 Timothy, the second chapter. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Are you doing that? For kings and all who are in authority. And here's the purpose, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God gives us that instruction. And remember that when the Apostle Paul gave Timothy this instruction, they were under the Roman Empire. They were under the Roman government. There was an emperor, and they were governors over various districts. So Paul is saying... You need to pray for those who are in authority that we can have law and order and we can have peace and that we can continue to fulfill the mission they've given us. And Paul and his support team traveled all over the Mediterranean. And we had that uh, very uh, good Bible study series by Mike DeSimone uh, showing where the Apostle Paul traveled. They had the maps going over on the ship in the Mediterranean and traveling over land and in uh, minor, Asia Minor and, uh, of course, northern uh, Israel, north of Jerusalem. Uh, so it was, uh, there was a certain amount of peace uh, where the apostles could travel and, and preach the gospel. We may not like 
our governors or presidents or mayors or those who are in authority, but God has given us a responsibility to pray for them. Dr. Meredith wrote in the September-October Tomorrow's World magazine, 2016, and we'll probably have another one along that line, 2020, when the presidential elections come up again. How would Jesus vote for president? Dr. Meredith wrote, quote, God certainly commands all who claim to be Christians to be alert to world trends, to watch for the signs of the times, Luke 21, verses 34 through 36. He instructs us to respect and even to pray for the elected and appointed government officials who are in authority in our nations. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, and 1 Peter 2, verses 17 through 18, end of quote. We might, we've just read 1 Timothy. Let's turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, the second chapter, uh, verse 17 and 18. 1 Peter 2, verse 17 and 18. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Of course, there were there was King Herod, but there was also the the Caesar, who was the emperor of the uh, empire. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So remember that under these circumstances, Peter. And, of course, the Apostle Paul would say, you need to honor the king. You need to pray for those who are in authority. So we have a glorious calling as heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, as it tells us in Romans the 8th chapter, verse 17. And we will be born into God's royal family. We are called a royal priesthood. Priests are teachers, and we rehearse that at the feast, but let's just review that again. In Isaiah 30 and verse 20, Isaiah 30, verse 20, what will you be doing in the millennium as kings and priests? Isaiah 30, verse 20, and though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Even after Jesus was resurrected and be born into the kingdom as a glorious spirit, immortal being, he still was able to manifest himself in the physical flesh, move through walls with locked doors, even eat fish as he did with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. So we will be able to manifest ourselves so people can see us. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. That your teachers will not be moved in a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. So we have that wonderful responsibility. We're learning the way of life that we will be teaching in the millennium. But priests also intercede for others. We are a royal priesthood, and we will follow the example of our great high priest. Turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Of course, you know the book of Hebrews is the priesthood book. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the wonderful encouragement for all of us in chapter four. 
starting with uh, verse 14, Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We need to hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now I know some people who are suffering will say, Mr. Ames, you don't know the kind of pain I'm suffering with this cancer. Well, no, I don't know that particular pain, but I've had very extreme pain when I've had to yell and cry out to God. So we can sympathize with one another because we experience the common temptations, the common pains, the common problems. And God has promised, of course, in Second Corinthians 10:13 that He will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will with that temptation give us a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. But we can identify with the problems and the pain and the trials that our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing and people in the world are experiencing. And Christ knows what it's like because he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Therefore, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we heard in the sermonette, we can come to our Father in heaven who is compassionate and who is willing to listen to us and to intervene for us. We come boldly to that throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace in time of need. So we thank God for that wonderful blessing that he gives us. Now turn to Hebrews, the seventh chapter, and we find the role of Christ as high priest. And this, again, if you don't have it marked in your Bible, you really should, because it is is one that I continually remind God and Christ of, and his role as the great high priest. He's talking about the order of Melchizedek in the context, but verse 25 of Hebrews 7. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. Yes, he's able to save you. And, of course, Philippians 1, 6 tells us that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. So God's not going to let you go. He's going to continue to work with you right to the end. Uttermost, those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is before the Father's throne to intercede for you because he knows every pain, every temptation that human beings suffer. That's why he is our awesome and our wonderful great high priest. We want to see next some of the historical examples of intercession. And uh, actually, I have a, a whole printout here. It must have been, uh, I think it was Nave's topical Bible uh, that listed two pages of uh, intercessions. So it had uh, intercession of man with man, um, intercession of man with God, uh, Exemplified prayer intercessory, whole whole page of examples of intercession. Solicited 
uh, prayers of intercession, by Pharaoh of Moses, uh, by Israel of Samuel, of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, answered incidences of uh, intercession. And uh, it goes on and on and on. So the Bible is filled with all these examples. But let's take a look at one, what to me is one of the most prime examples of intercession. You already mentioned uh, Moses in the example of uh, the rebellion in number 16. But let's turn to Deuteronomy, the ninth chapter, uh, Deuteronomy 9. And to, <laughs> and this is amazing to me, but God knew Moses. He'd worked with him, and of course, uh, Moses was 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian as a shepherd. Then God called him at age 80 to go back into Egypt. So God knew Moses and was dealing with him. But chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, and uh, this, of course, is the uh, rebellion uh, when uh, Moses was up in the mountains and uh, uh, the people uh, were rebelling. And uh, so the Lord said to me, verse 12, Deuteronomy 9, Then the Eternal said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. Now notice uh, the word God gives here. Your people that you have brought out from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside. They are a stiff-necked people, end of verse 13. And God says to Moses, Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. How would you respond to that? (laughs) Boy, that sounds great. (laughs) Yes, Lord, you go ahead and blot them out and make of me a great nation. Your will be done. It's not what Moses did. He could have very easily did that. Verse 15, so I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands, and I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the eternal your God, had made yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the eternal had commanded you. And I took the two tablets and threw them out of, out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Eternal as at the first forty days and forty nights, neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you commanded in doing wickedly in the sign of the Eternal to provoke him to answer, to anger. So Moses could have said, yes, blot them out and uh, make me a great nation and that will solve the problem. But he went and fasted another forty days. He interceded for a whole nation. And he said, God, he says in that case that uh, the eternal was, but the eternal listened to me at that time also, end of verse 19. And he prayed for Aaron also at the same time, end of verse 20. So he was interceding. He had prayers of intercession. So he took the uh, calf, ground it up into gold and Verse 25, I kept prostrating myself because the Eternal said he would destroy you. Therefore, I prayed to the Eternal and said, O Lord Eternal, do not destroy your people and your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
So again, Moses turns them around and uh, it says in verse 29 that they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched hand. So God had said they are your people, Moses, that you brought out. And Moses turns it around and said, no, they are your people whom you have brought out. An amazing act of intercession to save a whole nation. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. There are many other examples. I'll just mention them, not turn to that, where, where Moses, Miriam and Aaron complained against Moses in uh, Numbers, the 12th chapter. And uh, Moses said, if her father said, please heal her, O God, I pray. She became leprous. And God answered his intercessory prayer and say, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not have been shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. And then we also saw the earlier number of uh, number 16 of Moses interceding uh, when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were all swallowed up in the, in the earth. And then there's the example of Esther. Remember that Mordecai told her that uh, she wouldn't escape as, as the queen. And she said to go tell them all fast, verse 14, I won't turn there, but Esther 4, verse 15, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for these days, night or day. My ba- maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, And if I perish, I perish. Queen Esther was willing to intercede for her people, even at the vulnerability, the potential of her being killed, because it was not lawful to go before the king if he held out the golden scepter, which he did in this case, and she would be preserved alive. But she was willing to intervene for her people. Turn to Job, another example of, Awesome uh, historic example of intercession. Job, the 42nd chapter. And you know, you read chapter after chapter of the three friends that are accusing Job of uh, having a hidden sin. And Job continues to say the pronoun I uh, about like some 50 times in a couple chapters there. Uh, Job was uh, had to learn some very serious lessons. And so after you learn that lesson, he repented. In verse 5, chapter 42 of Job, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job had to learn a very serious lesson. But what then happened after that? Verse 7, and so it was, after the Eternal had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to, the Eternal said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job. So they did what was commanded of them, end of verse 9. 
Notice verse 10. And the eternal restored Job's losses. When? When he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the eternal gave Job twice as much as he had before. So God didn't heal Job and prosper him until he prayed for his friends. There's so many of these classic examples of intercession, but let's take a look at the one on Genesis 18, another one with which you're familiar. Genesis 18. Here, you think of it, uh, initially you think of Abraham interceding for the wicked city of Sodom. Of course, it wasn't just for the wicked city of Sodom. It was for his nephew Lot and his Lot's family was one of the reasons he negotiated with the eternal in this particular case. Genesis 18 and verse 4. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. So uh, here was uh, the eternal with two uh, men, obviously angels that were uh, with him, and he brought the good calf and butter and milk, verse 8 and uh, went on to negotiate uh, toward Sodom. And uh, the men rose from there, and verse 16, looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Eternal said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And so Abraham begins to negotiate with uh, God, uh, with the one who became Jesus Christ, the Yahweh, the Eternal of the Old Testament. And uh, verse 22, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Eternal. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 that were in it? And uh, Abraham starts preaching to the Eternal in verse 25. Far be it for you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Should not the judge of all the earth do right? (laughs) Wow, zap. (laughs) You've had it, uh, you've had it, Abraham, uh, who you're preaching to. You know who you're preaching to. God is merciful. He's not threatened by human beings. We can be as bold and uh, probably you almost say was, uh, Abraham was almost arrogant, but he was really preaching the truth. He was preaching a godly principle. Though the Eternal said, If I find Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sides. Now, for their sakes. Now, as an aside, maybe one of your family is pressing you like Abraham was pressing the Eternal. And you're going to correct your husband, daughter, son, or father, or mother because of the pressure they're putting on you. How will you answer? Just answer the question and not do the corrective part. For that's an option. And, of course, that's what God did. In this particular case, he just answered the question and continued on negotiating. negotiating all the way down to 10, as you know, in verse 32. Suppose 10 should be found there, and he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. 
So the Eternal went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So Abraham had actually interceded for Sodom. Take a look at one more example, Jeremiah 38 and verse 7. Remember, the king had put Jeremiah in an abandoned well. And uh, he was just going to suffer and die there unless someone interceded for him. Jeremiah, the 38th chapter. And who was it that interceded for him? Jeremiah 38 and verse 7. Now, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. And he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no bread in the city. The whole city was starving. And the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. Probably 30 men because they were so weak they had to uh, pull him up from that uh, well. They called it a dungeon here, but way down uh, below somehow. doesn't say how deep uh, below the earth he was, uh, but they finally rescued him. And that was because of the intercession of Ebed-Melech to the king. Has God preserved nations because of intercession? We already saw even two cases in essence, number 16 and Deuteronomy 9, uh, where Moses interceded for the nation of Israel. And God saved the nation because of his intercession. I won't turn there, but you know the one classic example of a nation city-state that repented, which was Nineveh in Assyria. In Jonah 3, verse 10, I won't turn there, but I'll just read it. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, Jonah didn't want them to be preserved. He wanted to see them destroyed so that he, as the prophet of Israel, could have pronounced disaster upon Nineveh. But they repented, and God preserved them. There's another moving prayer of intercession by Daniel in Daniel, the ninth chapter. Daniel 9. This was after the Jews are in captivity. And it was coming to the end of the 70 years that um, had been prophesied uh, that the Jews would be in the Babylonian captivity. In uh, Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years, specifically by the word of the Lord, of the Eternal, that Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord Eternal, to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Eternal, my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him 
and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even from departing from your precepts. So he goes on and continues with this very heartfelt prayer. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 11, yes, all Israel has transgressed. And he said in verse 16, O eternal, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. You heard that special music, Jerusalem, city of gold. Forever young, forever old. We look forward to that as our future home. Your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and supplications for the eternal sake. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. A real heartfelt prayer of intercession. And what was the answer? Verse 9. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of all my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the eternal my God for the holy mountain of my God, then he was sent, Gabriel, who gave him encouragement, told him he was greatly beloved, and then introduces the 70 weeks prophecy. There's so many, but these are so important and so inspiring because God has called us to be intercessors. There's going to be a future prayer of intercession. I turn to Joel right here. Joel right after Daniel, Hosea, Joel. A couple prophecies later. Joel, the second chapter. Of course, the theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. That's the time of judgment on the nations, which we've had a telecast by that title. Notice chapter 2, when he talks about the day of the Lord, but uh, how the earth will quake. And we sing that psalm, uh, verse 10, the sun and moon grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness, the eternal gives voice before his army. His camp is very great and strong as the one who executes the word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So after the two and a half years of the great tribulation, you have the heavenly signs, and then the one-year day of the Lord, which is the judgment on the nations. But then he says, Now therefore, says the Eternal, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Eternal, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness, and he relents from doing, uh, doing harm. So again, there is coming a time when the priests and the ministers will be praying for God's people. Verse 17, let the priests who minister to the eternal weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people.
people, O eternal. So there are trying times ahead. There will be prayers of intercession even in that time. And do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So there will be prayers of intercession in the future, particularly the beginning of the day of the Lord. Turn to Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter, Ezekiel 22. As we know, we have the responsibility of the Ezekiel warning. Ezekiel message should... Ezekiel was called to be a watchman of the house of Israel, chapter 3 and chapter 33 of Ezekiel. But here in chapter 22, in verse 30, God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22, verse 30, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord Eternal. So God wanted someone to stand in the gap, and we've had a sermon by that title. Uh, Actually, Mr. Weston gave a sermon by that title, Standing the Gap, on December 3rd, 1998, just when the church was going through a disruption. We have another one, July 21st, uh, 2012, also standing in the gap. And Mr. Weston's telecast on Ezekiel's message unlocked has uh, gone viral and over 800,000 views. It must be much more than that now. So let's understand that God set Ezekiel to be a watchman to the house of Israel, but Are we part of that responsibility? Dr. Meredith wrote in the Living Church News, May, June 2011, For we in the Living Church of God are called to perform a truly powerful work before the Great Tribulation and before Christ's return. This is from an article titled, Cry Out for the Gifts of the Spirit. If we do not truly warn our peoples of what lies just ahead, then who will? Let us regularly focus on Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 7. For as Herbert W. Armstrong explained, this is our collective responsibility. This is our collective responsibility as the true church of God. So thank you, brethren, for your collective and wholeheartedly support of God's mission, that we must be standing in the gap. There's another time in modern history, World War II, and we had the telecast by Mr. Rod McNair on the miracle of Dunkirk. And I was just looking at it the other day on our website, and actually there's a short, uh, normally our programs are 28 minutes and 30 seconds, but there's a short version of the miracle of Dunkirk. You might want to watch that on our website. It's only three minutes and uh, 39 seconds. It's still uh, very, very effective. What happened before the expeditionary forces and the Allies were rescued from Dunkirk? Uh, This is a book called We Have a Guardian. It mentions that King George VI actually called a day of prayer because they knew 
as Winston Churchill said, that he expected that only um, maybe 20 or 30,000 out of the 340,000 uh, would be saved because they were trapped uh, by the German army there in Dunkirk. It was a national day of prayer that was called May 26, 1940. Uh, 1940. And um, I'll just read part of it from page 9 here. By the end of the second week in May, the French defenses at Sedan and on the Meuse were broken, and there followed the rapid advance of German panzer forces across France and Belgium. King Leopold capitulated. Uh, the Belgian army ceased to resist, and the German, quote, armored side the stroke almost reached Dunkirk. The only port from which to evacuate the British expeditionary force uh, was Dunkirk. On May 27th, the German high command went so far as to boast, the British army is encircled, our troops are proceeding to its annihilation. The position was serious beyond measure. Afterwards, in a speech in the House of Commons on June 4th, Mr. Churchill revealed how grave had been the prospect. He said, I thought, and some good judges agreed with me, that perhaps 20 or 30,000 men might be reembarked. But King George VI proclaimed a national day of prayer on May 26th, and then became the miracle of Dunkirk with the intervention of the storm and the intervention of the calm waters. So we need to pray for our leaders, and our leaders take initiative, as they do from time to time, as King George VI did, and as George Washington did as president, as Abraham Lincoln did when he made the proclamation in March 30th, 1863, when he said it's the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. He also sought pardon for our national sins. Of course, this was in 1863 uh, during the Civil War. He said, All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. We're in a divided country. And would our president have a proclamation similar to what Abraham Lincoln proclaimed? But there is coming a time when it's going to be too late, when our intercessory prayers will not be heard and will not be welcome. But they are welcomed now, and God gives us the instruction to pray for kings and those who are in authority. Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, the 7th chapter, gives a a prophecy of a time when we are told not to pray for this people. Because, why? Because that is the time of judgment. God is giving us a certain amount of time to pray. 
But there's coming a time when there'll be a famine of the word, as it tells us in Amos. There's going to be a time when it's cut off. It's too late. You've had your chance to repent, but now it's too late. Jeremiah, uh, the seventh chapter, and verse 16. Jeremiah 7, verse 16. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the city of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? They have solidified their character to evil, that so intercessory prayers aren't going to make a difference in this case, because now is the time of judgment. And that time is coming during the day of the Lord. But we now must pray for those who are in authority. When was the last time you prayed for a president, a king, or a prime minister? We have the heads of state of various countries. The president of Russia is Vladimir Putin. The president of France, Emmanuel Macron. Germany Chancellor is Angela Merkel. The United Kingdom, we have listed the monarch, Elizabeth II, Prime Minister Theresa May. The United States, President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence. New Zealand, monarch Elizabeth II, Governor General Dame Patsy Reddy, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Canada, monarch, Elizabeth II, Governor General, Julie Payette, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. China, President Xi Jinping, Premier Li Qingang. Japan, Emperor Akihito, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. South Africa, President Cyril Ramphosa. Mexico, President Enrique Peña Nieto. Italy, President Sergio Mattarella. Israel, President Reuven Rivlin, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Saudi Arabia, King Salman bin Abdulaziz al-Sudad and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Egypt, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Prime Minister Mustafa Madbouli. A European Union, President of the Council, Donald Turk, President of the Parliament, Antonio Tajani. President of the Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker. Juncker. And so even here in our state of North Carolina, who's the governor? The governor is Henry uh, Ray Cooper, is North Carolina, Henry uh, McMaster is that of South Carolina. So, brethren, I encourage you to do what Christ encourages us to do through the Apostle Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 2, to pray for the governor of North Carolina, who is Henry, Mc, uh, I'm sorry, Roy Cooper, and Henry McMaster, the governor of South Carolina. And then we have a, a mayor who is... Uh, I think it was recently elected last year, the first uh, African-American woman to be a Charlotte mayor, Vi Lyles, V-I, first name Lyles, L-Y-L-E-S. 
So we need to be praying for them. And I hope that you will realize, yes, it's a part of what God has given us as a responsibility to pray for leaders who are in authority. God has given us the responsibility of the Ezekiel warning, and we are blowing the trumpet to the world before God judges the nations during the day of the Lord. We're warning the Western nations and, of course, the nations of Israel that the great tribulation is coming, and God is calling now the first fruits to stand in the gap as we preach the good news of the world-ruling kingdom of God coming to this earth. So pray for government leaders, not only by talking here to those here in the United States, but Canada and South, South America, Africa, Asia, uh, all of our brethren around the world. Whoever may be the leader of your country, you need to pray for that, those individuals, those who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We also need to pray for one another. You know that, James 5 and verse 16. James 5, have a, actually a sermon by that same title, Pray One for Another. James 5 and uh, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we know all of our brethren are doing that. We, my, you prayed for me when I had my stroke. I'm praying for my wife with had her heart attack three weeks ago. And it's just so very, very encouraging to all of us. And we have several brethren here in, in Charlotte who have broken bones and in the hospital and other maladies and afflictions, and you're praying for them. And just remember that effectual, fervent prayer avails much. Pray for miracles of healing. And I pray that even those who are going through or in the hospital or in a convalescent home, that God will speed up their healing. If they've got a broken bone or whatever the case may be, ask God to work miracles. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a great man. But he was a man of a nature like ours. Why does he tell us that? Because you can pray the same way Elijah did. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So pray for one another. And we have those prayer requests. I I found uh, my old prayer list. Actually, this is dated December 8th, 2017. I had uh, 125 names on this list. I need to update it, and I'm glad I'm giving this sermon, so I will have to uh, look at this. Some of the people have gone to sleep in Christ, have died in the meantime. But I brought to my mind some people that have been out of my, my mind and thinking and I can go back and start praying for them. So I hope you, you have a list uh, that you're making of, of a prayer list. I might just mention back in uh, 
1980, uh, when I was uh, director of admissions at Ambassador College, I wrote a, an editorial for the Ambassador Portfolio titled, Who's on Your List? I'll just read an excerpt for this. is Ambassador Portfolio, October 24th, 1980. Who's on your list? There are many kinds of lists. There are shopping lists, to-do lists, multitudinous checklists, enemy hit lists. There are the popular the book of lists and the book of list two, as well as the more recent Meredith book of Bible lists. This morning, while looking into a seldom-used desk drawer in my home study, I find a couple of old lists of a different nature, prayer lists. Well, I'll skip down to the end. Does God actually keep a list? Uh, C, is your name in the book of life, the good news, March 1980. Jesus told 70 disciples just returning from a tour of announcing the kingdom of God, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I conclude the article. We can all rejoice that God is willing to remember our names and to write them down. Jesus Christ has us on his prayer list Who's on your list? So hopefully uh, you, of course, you may have a, a list in your own mind. I, I probably every, every night pray for about 50 or 60 people uh, just that I know in my mind and I don't need a piece of paper to pray for them. So I hope that you're praying one for another. Take a look at uh, Colossians, the third, the fourth chapter, or the one who was praying for his brethren, Colossians, and God mentions his by name because he was concerned for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Colossians 4 and verse 12. Colossians 4 verse 12. Epaphras, who was one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So here was a man that labored fervently in prayer. And, of course, you remember Anna the prophetess in Luke, the second chapter. Uh, she served God day and night with fasting and prayers and mainly spent time in the temple. So pray for one another. And pray for those who are on the list, I guess, I don't know if I have that. Uh, yes. If you want a list to pray for, of course, here's our church bulletin today. And on the back page, lists is the ministers, deacons, and deaconesses. So here's a list you can pray for. Also, pray for those who are in need. We're told to do good unto all men. Remember Galatians 6.10, especially to those the house of, uh, of faith, the household of faith. We have those two outreach uh, programs on November 15th that uh, Mr. Weston announced in the announcements. And so we appreciate all of you who are doing those service to others and showing that kindness and doing good to others. But here, Romans the 8th chapter, Romans 8, shows God's promise that regardless of our circumstance, nothing, will interfere with his love for us. 
And yet we can pray for others who are going through deadly and threatening circumstances. Romans 8, verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who love us. Yes, we are to be overcomers. We are to be victorious. We are to be conquerors. And we can do that through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, amazing opposites, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. So we heard in the sermonette about praying your worries away nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which in Christ Jesus our Lord. On July, in July 2018, 12 boys and their soccer coach went cave exploring in Thailand. They were missing when floodwaters trapped them in the cave. It was over three weeks. Did you happen to pray? Uh, for those 13 who were lost in the cave. Thailand Navy SEALs rescued all 13 over a period of three days. They had two Navy SEALs, one Navy SEAL and one of the boys and a Navy SEAL behind them swimming underwater through the cave. And how far were they from the entrance? One report said two and a half miles. One report said uh, five kilometers or would 3.1 miles from the entrance. So God promises neither depth nor other or nor height can separate us from the love of God. All 13 were rescued. And then I'm sure some of you must have prayed in 2010, when 33 miners in Chile were rescued on October 13th, they were in a mine 2,000 feet under the ground for 69 days. And God says no depth is going to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And I hope, perhaps, that some of you prayed for them. So we pray not only for those who are in need, not only for the household of faith, but we're to do good to all men and pray for those who are in need. And what else? Pray for your enemies. You know that, but let's take a look at Luke, the ninth chapter. Take a look at the attitude of disciples. (laughs) And Jesus rebuked them. Because of their attitude. You know the story. The Samaritan village rejects the Savior as the subhead. Luke 9 and verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come from to receive up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52, Luke 9 and sent messages before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciple James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? Well, James and John were pretty bold. 
they wanted to be like Elijah. But what did Jesus say? He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Well, Matthew, the fifth chapter, Jesus tells us, if we are going to be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, we need to have this quality. Matthew 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. But you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. If you're not doing this, are you going to be the sons and daughters of your Father in heaven? For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Therefore, verse 48, be you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we need to pray for those who are our enemies. And, you know, I had a conflict with uh, one of the student leaders and ambassador when I was a, a freshman years ago, and I just I thought he was pretty arrogant and brash, and I just had a, a real <laughs> uh, difficult attitude towards him. But then I read that scripture, I started praying for him, praying for this uh, student leader who I felt was obnoxious. And, you know, I felt, oh, well, Father, please help him to repent, please help him to change. And I felt, Oh, now I don't long, no longer have that attitude of uh, uh, angst and, and uh, uh, urgency against him. Uh, I just realize he's a poor, poor fellow. He needs help. He needs to change. My whole attitude changed. And when you pray for those with whom you have conflict, uh, God gives you a certain kind of peace of mind. And, of course, that has to do with the attitude of forgiveness because when we were enemies, as it says in Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And, of course, Jesus prayed in his crucifixion, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Christ interceded for us when we were his enemies. Do we pray for our enemies? Dr. Paul Meyer has these uh, clinics throughout the United States, and he wrote in his book, and I've mentioned this to you before, but I think there are some new people who might help be helped by this. Dr. Paul Meyer wrote a book called Don't Let Jerks Get the Best of You. And he talks about those who were oppressed uh, from fragmented families, uh, um, disruptive families, and who were abused for many years, and they're in depression. So he begins works with them. And he says, quote, A patient may be depressed for many years. Then forgive the one who caused the repressed anger and totally recover from the depression because the serotonin has been restored naturally and the brain is able to work correctly. That's from page 170 in his book. So... People who have been in depression for years, 
They've been able to overcome that depression when they forgave the abuser. Dr. Meyer says on page 152, that deep-seated anger can lower your serotonin level and and cause clinical depression. Dr. Meredith wrote in his booklet, Carson, 12 Keys to Answered Prayer. Key number four, forgive others. So we need to come to God in humble, repentant, and forgiving attitude. Otherwise, as Jesus said, God will not forgive us. The spirit of humility and mercy is a key element in whether or not God will hear us as we pray. His inspired word tells us, but on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. So do you have conflicts with people in your family? How do you resolve them? Are you praying for them? Or not just in your family, but maybe your work environment or school environment? One of my students years ago wrote this essay, and I think it might be helpful if you were having trouble praying. Only in the last year and a half have I been able to recognize God as a loving and kind father both in a spiritual and physical sense. My parents were divorced when I was two years old, so I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. I was brought up in the Catholic religion. When I was 11 years old, my mother remarried. This was a major turning point in my life. Not only did I have a man invading our all-family lifestyle, but we began attending the Worldwide Church of God. I had always believed in God, but now I was beginning to have my doubts. I didn't understand why a loving God would do this to me. Suddenly I felt like an outcast. I was different from most people. My stepfather and I were not very close, mainly because I was afraid of men. This fear stemmed from the lack of male influence in my earlier life. She continues, Prayer was something I knew I was supposed to do, but I felt very uncomfortable with it. I was frustrated because I didn't understand why I felt this way. I thought there was something wrong with me. Then I heard a sermon on prayer. The minister stated that people who have had a cruel father or have been raised in a broken home sometimes have a hard time seeing God as a loving father. Now at least I knew why I felt this way. I began to pray that my relationship with my stepfather would become closer. God blessed me, and the relationship became more relaxed. Not only did I become closer to my stepfather, but I felt more comfortable in my relationship with God. He became more real to me. God blessed me both spiritually in my relationship with him and physically in my relationship with my stepfather and family. God is our supreme father, and he loves all as his children. It's a real touching and beautiful essay from one of our ambassador students years ago. So when the Samaritans initially rejected Jesus to visit Samaria, the disciples wanted to call down fire for heaven, but Jesus rebuked them. The Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. So pray for your enemies. Christ interceded for you when you were his enemy. He is our great intercessor. And let's turn to Romans, the 8th chapter again. 
Romans 8. And we find again this reinforcement, not only as we read in Hebrews, that he ever lives to make intercession for us, but we find this re-emphasized in Romans the 8th chapter and verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And of course, that means the universe. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we thank God that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Why should we pray for others? Christ prayed for us when he was crucified. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And even now as our great high priest, he intercedes for us daily. He had the golden rule, Matthew 7, verse 12, which was a theme of the youth camp in Athens, Texas this summer. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, to them, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If you were in trouble, you would want others to pray for you. If you were in the grips of sin, wouldn't you want others to pray for you? Richard Foster wrote in a book on prayer called The Heart's True Home, intercession is a way of loving others, quote, unquote. So we're training to be priests in God's kingdom, and we need to pray for those who are in any trouble. Even God hears the prayers of children, and I thank God if the children are praying for me because I know God hears their prayers. Years ago, there was a miracle when a man delivering a dump truck full of gravel to a church member's home in Virginia was emptying this huge dump truck. The the bed of the truck was lifted up, and it got stuck in the upward, and he apparently foolishly got under the bed of the truck, and the bed of the truck slammed down, squeezing him within one inch between the cab and the bed of the truck and his legs flat under the bed of the truck. This is from the Worldwide News uh, back in, uh, I don't have the date handy here, but uh, back in the 70s. And a letter tells of God's intervention. It shows a, a photo of the man measuring with a a ruler the distance where his head was squashed into one inch. Shown is David Rogers, 20, of Newport News, Virginia, who was crushed in a two-inch space, two-inch space, sorry about that, between the above-pictured truck cab and the bed. He had, sorry, he he indicates the space with a ruler. After the accidents which occurred, while he was delivering gravel for a member of the Newport News Church, he was taken to a hospital, but released one and a half hours later with only a scratch on his arm. He didn't even require a bandage. 
uh, complete story appears below. The woman who saw this said, The bed fell on him. I yelled for him to jump. He tried, but his foot was caught in the frame of the truck. He was sitting in a sitting position with his leg in a bent position with the back against the cab of the truck. The bed of the truck plus the lead load of gravel came crushing down on his knee. I looked again and saw the bed of the truck was all the way up. But he yelled for me to pay, pay the de- the, uh, to pull the gears. My daughter and I tried hard, but failed to do that. I couldn't, I couldn't stand to watch. I looked again and saw the bed of the truck was up all the way. I began to pray and ask God to spare his life. Debbie, her daughter, was with him. And his last words to her were to pray. She ran inside the house again to pray for him. All that could be seen of him with the bed of the truck down was a small portion of his face and some of his shoulder. He was black and blue. He stayed that way for about eight to ten minutes. When Debbie and I came back out, the bed of the truck was raised. She talks about her daughter. The ambulance took him to the hospital. He waited one and a half hours for word on his condition. Finally, his father called and said he was putting on his clothes to get home. He did not even have a broken bone, no brain damage, no punctures, only a small scratch on his arm, which didn't even require a Band-Aid. All the people looking on said this was a complete miracle. My daughter, Debbie, who was 11 years old, didn't wait for a man's help. She trusted God from the very beginning. She said later, Mama, if I had run away, he would have lost faith. So he had asked this 13-year-old girl to pray for him, and she did, and God intervened. Your intercessory prayers in this age will be evidence of God's love even in the white throne judgment. But when billions of people come up in the white throne judgment, perhaps one of your relatives or friends or neighbors will be before the throne of judgment. And Christ can say to that person, because you had prayed for him or her, remember my son, John Smith? Remember my daughter, Sally Jones, who prayed with, for you when you almost died? Who prayed for you to have a blessing? And now you see why I gave you that blessing God can say to that person. So your intercessory prayer in 2018, 2019 might save someone in a little more than a thousand years from now when the white throne judgment takes place. Prayer is powerful because you're praying by the authority of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the name Jesus Christ. He gives you that authority, and your prayer can make a dramatic difference. Well, God has called us to be intercessors, to pray for one another, to pray for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority. He's called us to be a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. Your prayer of intercession can make a difference whether it's 12 soccer players and their coach three miles in a cave from the entrance, or 33 miners in 
chilly or 2,000 feet under the ground, or a man smashed in a steel dump truck. God will hear your prayers, and he will intervene. Always pray and intercede for others. Because we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who ever lives to intercede for us.